1 John 4, 7 through 12, we're going to begin in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your continued faithfulness and your grace to us. We thank you that you are the one who enables us to respond in obedience and faith and love to you. We rest in this fact, and we rest in uh, the reality that you are in control of all things, and we trust you, and we rely on you today in Christ's name. Amen. If you have XY chromosomes, you are a male and not female. If you have apples hanging on your branches, you are an apple tree and not a cherry tree. If you give birth to puppies, you are a dog and not a snake. If your chemical composition is two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, you are water and not salt. If you are able to maintain your own body temperature, you are warm-blooded and not cold-blooded. And according to the passage in front of us, if you hate people... If you hate Christians, then you yourself are not a Christian. You are an unbeliever. And we reach this conclusion based on verse 8 of 1 John 4, where we read these words, anyone who does not love does not know God. Pretty straightforward statement. John is back in the letter of 1 John to talking about love again. Love, of course, as you know, has been a big theme in his letter, and we saw back in chapter 3, particularly verses 11 through 18, a very high-definition view of what love looks like. And then we had a section, a little bit of a break from this topic, a section dealing with someone who has an overly scrupulous conscience, one whose conscience is always going off, and how God is greater than our conscience. And then last week, we saw a passage on how to test the spirits. In other words, a passage on how to practice discernment. Today's passage now represents a return to this theme of love. Remember, John has a tendency to not move on in a linear fashion from one topic to another, but he has a tendency to kind of do these circles where just when you think he's done with the topic, he kind of comes back to it again and again and again. And so in, uh, in light of that, we're back to the idea of love here. And in particular, <coughs> excuse me, in particular, we're going to look at what love looks like from God's perspective. That is, when you start with God rather than starting with man. And so 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 12, let's read that together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves uh, it has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The outline that we're going to follow today uh, is the command, the example, application, and validation. Uh, I've printed off 
uh, the outline for you and actually have broken it up into a little bit more detail. Um, this is a front and back. We're going to get to the back side uh, soon. But on the front side, you can see the outline uh, that we've put up here on the screen. We begin with uh, the command itself, which is given to us in verse 7. And the command is pretty straightforward. He simply says, Beloved, let us love one another. This command is nothing new in John's letter. Um, John Bunyan uh, wrote uh, of this kind of love that we have for believers, for fellow believers, and he compares it to someone who is uh, in a foreign country, and then you meet someone else from your home country. You're in a foreign land, and then all of a sudden you meet another American. And all of a sudden, uh, all you just like are attracted to this person in the sense that finally someone who speaks my language and understands what I understand and shares the same values and all those kinds of things. Bunyan specifically says of this, travelers that are of the same country love and take pleasure in one another when they meet in a strange land. Why, when we sojourn here in a strange country with them that are heirs together with us of the promise, kingdom, and glory? And then he also says, how great is the delight of meeting in a foreign country after a long absence from home with one who speaks your own language and sympathizes with your national feelings. How more strong are those enjoyments arising from the communion of saints while traveling through an enemy's country with difficult duties to perform, animated by a kindred spirit and seeking the same eternal home. You hear what Bunyan's saying here? You know, you're in another country and you find someone who speaks the same language, and there's immediately this camaraderie and this love for one another, even though you've never met this person in your life. You may have experienced something similar. Maybe you are not uh, traveling in another country, but you're maybe in an airplane, and you're sitting next to someone, and suddenly you find out through conversation that the person you're sitting with is a believer in Christ, is a fellow Christian, okay? Do you know that feeling you experience when you're kind of soul lights up inside of you, and all of a sudden now there's this camaraderie and this communion and this fellowship and this love that you share uniquely because of your Savior. That's exactly what Bunyan is talking about, and that's really, in, in some senses, what the text is talking about here in the sense that um, when you meet another believer in Christ, there just is an immediate love and connection for that person. And what John is saying is if you don't have this love, if this love is absent, if you sit down next to a fellow Christian and there's nothing there, he's saying you need to really take a look and ask yourself, am I really a Christian to begin with? Is it, because there is a natural love that flows out of um, what, what believers have for one another. There's a kind of affection that exists. Now there's a connection that is made here, and that connection is that the verse says, love is from God. And so what we see is that we are supposed to have love for one another, but then we see what the source of that is, and that is that it comes from God. God is the source of love. Just like faith and repentance are gifts from the Lord, so is love. One writer says, if love divines, uh, belongs to the divine sphere, it follows that anybody who shows love must belong to that sphere. And there's evidence of this presented as two 
sides of the same coin. And we see that in the last part of verse 7, beginning of verse 8. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not uh, love does not know God because God is love. Now, there's something that I want to see here and explore in a little bit of detail, uh, and that is specifically the language of the new birth that he uses here. He says in verse 7, whoever loves has been what? Born of God, okay? This terminology, being born of God, comes from Jesus' conversation with who? Nicodemus, okay? And in that conversation, you may recall, we read this passage in John 3, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, here's the language of the new birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, and of course he naturally replies with, wait, what? (laughs) What? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And Jesus is, is saying, this is not what I'm talking about. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So when, he talk, when Jesus is saying, you must be born again, He's saying, I'm not talking about physical birth. Your physical birth is your first birth. He's saying, you have to be born again. That is to be born spiritually, be born from above, of the Spirit, of God. Okay? Theologians have a term for the new birth, and it is referred to as, anyone know what this word is? Regeneration. Okay? Regeneration. So the new birth, or to be regenerated, to be born again, Someone who has no spiritual life at all is dead. Dead corpse at the bottom of the ocean, okay? They don't need a life preserver thrown to them, okay? They actually need life breathed into their lungs, and they need to be born again. They need to be given the new birth, okay? Now, what John does here in our passage is he makes a very significant connection, and I want you to observe this connection. He says that the new birth is a necessary requirement for something. You see what that something is? In order to do this thing, you need to be born again. You need the new birth, okay? What is that thing? Love, to be able to love, okay? The end of verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God. The connection that's made here. You need this ability, or you need this new birth in order to have this ability. And so as I was preparing this week uh, and studying for this message, I knew, in fact, I've already brought this up earlier in our uh, study in John. Uh, I brought this up in uh, 1 John 2. uh, And as we were going, as I was preparing this week, I, I thought, I know there's a couple of different passages in 1 John where he talks about the new birth, and I just wanted to put all of them together side by side. And so I did that, and uh, I uh, saw that there are specifically six verses in 1 John where he refers to the new birth. This is uh, the Greek word genao, to be born, okay? And so on the back side of your handout, 
I have put all six verses from 1 John here, okay? So every verse in 1 John that, taught, that uses the word ganao, to be born, is here on this handout, okay? And I started doing a little bit of uh, pulling apart each verse, and every single time John uses this, every single verse that has this word here, John follows the same formula every time, okay? This is going to be slightly technical, and hopefully you understand it, and, and it's not, I'm not confusing this or making this cloudy, but I, I, I'm going to make a point here, and so we just got to go through this together, okay? So like it or not, here we go, okay? So he, he says, uses the word ganao to be born, and in every verse, the word born is in the perfect passive tense, okay? In general, in Greek, this is the past tense, okay? The perfect passive is usually past tense with present tense results, okay? So it happened in the past, but it's continuing to have effects into the present, okay? So every time he says born, it's past or perfect passive, and you can see that in the handout in the bold because it says has been born, okay? That's how this is translated into the English, okay? It's not was born, it's has been born, the idea of continuing results, okay? Every time that he uses that word, it's in the perfect passive tense, and he connects it with another word that is present active, which is the present tense, okay? Not to belabor this point and add to the confusion, basically, by putting the new birth in the past, and another word, verb, or participle in the present, he's just simply saying that there is an order to things that has to happen. In order for you to do this thing in the present, this thing in the past had to have already happened. Is that straightforward enough? Okay. So in our passage, in 1 John 4, in order to love, present tense, you have to have been, uh, I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? In order to love, present tense, you have to have been born in the past, okay? There's a logical order here to things. We understand this. We should already understand this because we know I need God's grace to be able to, to grow in my sanctification and love people, okay? I need God. I can't do this independently of God. That should be uh, something we understand, but it's stated here explicitly. You have been born and therefore, um, you're able to, uh, to love. So by putting the new birth in the past tense and some other verb or participle in the present tense, John is saying that the new birth or regeneration is the prerequisite for these other things, okay? Meaning this, in order to be righteous, I need regeneration. In order to have victory over sin, I need Regeneration. In order to display genuine love, I need regeneration. In order to have faith in Jesus, I need regeneration. In order to have Christian victory, I need regeneration, okay? Now, that's kind of what I've displayed here on, on the handout. So if you look at the top of it, 1 John 2, 9, 
You see I have the, first, uh, the second column here, present active, perfect passive. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born. Okay, and then I have the last column there. You guys know the three dots. That's the symbol for therefore, right? Okay, therefore, okay. Therefore, the new birth precedes righteous behavior. It, do you see the connection to all this? So then at the bottom of the sheet of paper, you have the new birth. Oh, yeah, there you go. Thanks, guys. I forgot to put that out there. The new birth at the bottom of the screen or the bottom of the paper, that's the foundation. That's what's necessary and everything on top of that line, righteousness, victory over sin, genuine love, faith in Christ, Christian victory, that's the outflow of that. You see the connection here? So, um, so I need regeneration for all of these things. So to put it all up here in one place, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been, uh, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You see the connection in all of these things? He's stating what is necessary in order for the other things to happen. Okay, think of it this way. A dead corpse cannot be righteous, cannot have victory over sin, cannot love, cannot have faith, cannot have Christian victory. These things require life. Which means that we are completely dependent on the Lord to breathe life into our lungs. Physically, yes. Spiritually, yes. I need Christ. I need him for all things. This comes from God. Life itself is a gift from God. Now, the corollary is also true. Those who are born of God love, but those who don't evidence that love, they are not born again. Look at verse 8 again. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He, he's just checking off all the boxes here. Like This is straightforward. Regeneration is first, and then all this other stuff comes out of that. This is why we, well, one of the reasons why we fervently preach the gospel. Because we believe that it, it is to get the, heart, the, the cart for the heart, cart before the horse. To say, let's clean up our lives first and then come to Christ. No, it is Christ is the one who cleans up my life for me. So I come to Christ and then through that gospel... Through that regeneration, the, the new birth, the giving of life, all of these other things come as a result from that. If you love, then you wear the marks of your maker, the Lord. This brings us to the example. We have a command that we're to love others. We see very clearly in this command that the prerequisite is the new birth. And now we have an example of what this love looks like. In 9 through 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son, that is Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, since we're already 
talking about the order of things today. We're going to talk about the order of something else today, okay? You got to get some of these orders correct here to know what happens first and then this and then that. Look very closely. Look at verse 9 here. That first comes God's love, and then comes the sending of his son. This is significant, okay? And I want us to hone in on this. We've already talked about the order of regeneration first, then love. Now we're going to talk about the love of God first, sending of the son second, okay? may not be immediately apparent why this is so significant to get this order correct, but I hope that it will in a moment. This is significant because of a point that we have made repeatedly and is worth repeating once again, and I'm going to repeat it here today. Okay? We're going to approach this in the form of a question, and the question is simply this. What is the relationship between the love of God and the death of Christ. What's the relationship between that? Okay. Now, some of you know the answer to this. Um, again, we've talked about this before. But 1 John 4, 9 through 10, teaches there's an order here. And we're going to go to another verse that does this in Romans. Does anyone know this verse? Romans 5. Eight, yes. In this, uh, or sorry, sorry. But God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If the death of Christ came first, before the love of God, we might have something that looks like this. Jesus is desperately pleading with his father. What can I do, father, to convince you to love these people? If I died for them, then would you love them? Then would you put your love upon them? If that is how it worked it would be very easy for Christians to be suspicious of the love of the Father. That God the Father said, I'm not going to love those people. Okay, if you die for them, then I will love them. That's getting the order reversed here. Okay, We might doubt the authenticity of divine love. Romans 5.8 teaches us that Christ died while we were yet sinners. And 1 John 4, 9, our text, says that the sending of the Son was not the cause of God's love, but the result of it. This is significant. What this means, then, is that God's love for us resulted in sending Jesus Christ. God loved us first. If you're not following the point here... Forgive me for all, let me make it, try to make it clear, okay? We're simply saying that God's love for the believer goes all the way back to the fountainhead. It goes back to the source. It goes back to the beginning. 
God the Father does not need to be persuaded to love his children. He loves them with an everlasting love that goes all the way back to before the foundation of the world. God the Father, and I specifically am emphasizing Father here, because there, are, there is a false view of the Trinity that sometimes we adopt as Christians to think, well, Jesus loves me, but I'm not totally convinced about the Father, okay? The Father set his love on his children from before the foundation of the world so that it never wavered, never shuddered, never moved. He has loved us from before time itself began. This verse then should function as comfort to the believer, particularly to the believer who is inclined to doubt the Father's love for you. Why? Because the Father's love for you is not based on performance, but it is based on his own character. And we sometimes doubt the Father's love for us because we think that it's based on performance. But when you understand that the Father's love for you is based on his character, Because his character never wavers, his love for the believer never wavers. It's stable. If you look to yourself, you should have doubts of all of this because you are unstable. So let me quote some other people because they have a tendency to say things really well here. And I'm going to, okay, so let's go to MacArthur. The Father does not love his people strictly on the grounds that Jesus died for them. Rather, Jesus died for his people because the Father loved them. You see the order here? I love them, and therefore I'm going to send Jesus Christ. In this sense, then, the love of God is not the result of Christ's death, but rather its cause, for it is because God so loved the world that he gave his Son to be sacrificed on the cross. You see the order there even in John 3.16, okay? Sinclair Ferguson, he loved us before Christ died for us. It is because he loved us that Christ died for us. Uh, Millard Erickson, his systematic theology, the propitiation is a fruit of the Father's divine love, a fruit of it. John Calvin, for it was not after we were reconciled to him by the blood of his son that he began to love us, but he loved us before the foundation of the world that with his only begotten son, we too might be sons of God before we were anything at all. John Stott, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. Uh, Forsyth, the uh, atonement did not procure grace, it flowed from grace. And again, Calvin, the work of the atonement derives from God's love, therefore it has not established the latter. God loved us from the beginning. That's what we're saying. He doesn't waver on that. He doesn't say... You failed today, and so I'm going to take my love away from you. God's love is based on something that is stable, that is unchanging, and that never wavers. And it is himself and his own character. Okay, This needs to be a stabilizing force in your life. You need to understand this. 
armed with all of this information, let's go back and read these two verses one more time. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that he sent his son into the world. Do you see the order there? God manifested his love by sending Christ. That's the order. So that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why verse 10 says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Because you cannot possibly fathom or understand love if you start with man. Okay? Every conception of love that we can come up with, every example of love that we can come up with, will always, to some degree, uh, skew in one way or another. It'll be less than perfect. You do not have perfect love for your spouse. You do not have perfect love for your children. These things can and should reflect divine love, and they should increase in their reflection of it, and we can oftentimes see a glimmer of it in there. But he says, this is, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, okay? If you want to have a right view of love, you don't start with man, you start with God, Okay? This is part of the reason why all of the conceptions of love that our world is giving to us today is way off base because it starts with self, okay? And we have a thousand different variations and versions of love today that really look nothing like the biblical example of love. John Bunyan says this, God gave the very best of his flock, talking about Jesus Christ, even his only beloved son, for very dust and ashes. Dust. John Flavel, the Puritan. Oh, but to have Christ to be a propitiation for us. When the angels that fell were left desperate, therein was love indeed. He left the angels desperate. He did not atone for the sins of angels. When the angels fell, when the portion of the angels fell, that was it for them. No atonement, and God is just in that, by the way. He sent Jesus Christ to be an atonement for us. That's love. He was not under obligation to provide that. How can you even begin to categorize and to compartmentalize this kind of love? How do you even begin to explore it? or label it, or fathom it. It has no boundaries, it has no end, it has no bottom, it has no limits. It is vast and deep and wide and beyond all comprehension, and it is exemplified and put on display for us at the cross, the centerpiece of the way God was going to show divine love for us. And you have to start there if you're going to understand what love is. No conditions, no qualifications, no performance. It is, I will set my love upon you, and it will never waver. And all who repent and believe in Christ, evidence, and I'm going to say that because we will see this really coming clear in 1 John 5.1. It's on your sheet. Everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ 
has been born, okay? So everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, everyone who has faith in Christ, evidences that God has regenerated them. It goes back that far. When you understand this, at least as much as we can as human beings, there are certain necessary and logical responses. When you get your mind around this as much as we can, how can I do anything but this? There are certain things that flow out of this. And this is the application in verse 11. If God so loved us, if God so loved us, if this is the degree to which the Father has placed his love on the believer, then we we ought to love one another. We ought never waver in this point. What explanation does verse 11 require? Is there any explanation this means? Is this clear? He essentially says this. You saw what God did through the atonement. You saw God's love on display. You realized it was there before the foundation of the world. So what else can you do but therefore and go love the other brethren? Makes sense. Loving one another makes sense when you start with God. Right? And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. You want to see what it looks like? Start here. When you start there, then you begin to see, oh, I need to love the people of this church. I need to love my brothers and sisters in Christ with a kind of love that just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and is willing to just sacrifice everything for the sake of their needs. Loving one another makes sense when you start with God. God is the reference point, not man. Jesus said that the end times would be characterized specifically by decreasing love. In Matthew 24, Jesus says the love of many will grow cold. We live in such a day. The world's version of love looks like this. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Okay? And the second you stop scratching my back, forget it, I'm done. Right? Husbands and wives don't love one another anymore. In our day and age, you are disposable. The moment you don't satisfy me, I'm checking out. And of course, the list is endless. You don't fulfill my emotional needs, I'm checking out. You don't don't make a fuss over me anymore, like, I'm checking out. You don't make enough money, I'm checking out. And on and on it goes. It's It's so shallow, it looks nothing like what divine love looks like. And of course, we know that people will let us down, but the Lord never will. What are we to do? We're to to love others. I I, I said earlier that we're not going to do this perfectly, and yes, that is the case. We are sinful people, okay? But we're still commanded to follow through with this and obey the Lord in this area. And I understand that households can become damaged and Things can happen, okay? But the Lord has not left us alone. There, there can be glimmers of grace and joy and happiness and love that we see in our homes and in our households and in our community and in our church and in our family and all of these kinds of things. Because the Lord is a good God. God will never ultimately let us down. People will, but God will not. So what are we to do? We're to love others, not based on performance, not based on good works, but to love them 
unconditionally. This brings us to the final verse, verse 12, where we see that uh, the validation here, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This verse 12 is a little bit confusing. You see that first part of it? No one has ever seen God. It's like, how does this kind of fit into the flow of thought? It's like he took something out of a different place and just inserted it here, and you're like, okay, not sure what's going on with that. Um, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. What does not seeing God have anything to do with the rest of this on love? Um, Well, first of all, we we do know, I mean, this is the testimony of Scripture. Uh, No one has seen God. We we see, for example, Moses. You remember when Moses, God, God does not reveal himself to Moses in full. He hides him in the cleft of the rock and, and, and waits till he's, he can see his back, so to speak, before Moses can see. Every glimpse of God that people have gotten in the scripture has been veiled in some way. And so we've never seen the fullness of God in that way. Um, and so he says, no one's ever seen God. But the question is, how does that relate to the rest of this? And I think that the, the connection is this, Okay. He's been talking about love as the, as the natural result of God's work in my life, correct? Okay, so what is he saying here? He's saying, we haven't seen God physically, but we can see the effects of God working in our lives. And in, in this case, it's love. No one's seen God, but you've seen the effects of God. You've, you've seen lives changed, and you've seen people change, and you've seen people who have hated others growing into loving others because of God's work in their lives, okay? That's the connection that I think is going on here. Um, uh, going back to, to, to Flavel again, um, I think he says it well here. He says, the being of God is invisible, but the operations of his spirit and believers are sensible and discernible, Okay? The soul's union with Christ is a supernatural mystery, yet it is discoverable by its effects thereof, which are very perceptible in and by believers. Okay? He's saying that God's being is invisible, but his work is perceptible in the lives of, of people. And that's really what this text is about. If you hate other Christians then that really, we have to ask ourselves, am I a Christian to begin with? That's what this text is pointing us to. You cannot possibly experience the depth of God's love and be regenerated if you turn around and just hate other people. That's what he's saying here. The love of God is so humbling and so expansive that you cannot help but love the brethren. And so in light of this, three points of application. Number one, obviously, love one another, okay? Not with this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of thing, but pouring yourself into others so that even if they don't reciprocate that, I still love them. Number two, Repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for regeneration, which in turn will give you the ability to love others. So you actually kind of have to start with two, and then you go back to one, 
okay? We saw that in the order today, right? This is a side note here is how do we reform culture? Um, and we front load it with the gospel. We front load all of our conversations about going to the world with the gospel. And then the third point here, um, that, or rest in and rejoice in the love that God the Father has for all his children from before the foundation of the world. So first of all, rest in this. Worship him for this. Rejoice in the fact that God has loved his children with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the world. And then find hope that you do not need to persuade God to love you, but that he loves you with an everlasting love that is sourced in his own nature. That's where it comes from. Thank you, God, for your grace to us in this time. We rejoice in your love. We thank you that you have uh, been the author of the new birth and that it has discernible effects in the lives of believers. We rejoice in you and we rest in you. In Christ's name, amen.